Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. It seems that with each passing decade, we are less and less aggressive with working up the febrile infant. We used to do LPs on all infants under three months of age with a fever without an obvious source. And now we select infants carefully under two months of age for an LP, which we're going to talk about what that exact selection is in a moment. In this segment with Dr. Brett Burstein and Dr. Gary Joubert, who you may have heard before on our congenital heart disease episode, we're going to dig into the recent changes in management of the febrile infant under 60 days of age and the minimum workup requirement, which infants need an LP, and what biomarkers, if any, can help in decisions on management. So first, welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Burstein. This is your first time on EM Cases. It is. Thanks for having me. Could you just tell us a little bit about your uh, professional background? Sure. I'm a uh, clinician scientist in pediatric emergency medicine and trauma team leader at the Montreal Children's Hospital and Research Institute. And my main area of interest is uh, fever in infants in the first months of life. And Dr. Joubert, it's been a while, but we're absolutely delighted to have you back on EM Cases. So we've got two physicians here, pediatric emergency physicians who are in uh, different stages in their career. So maybe we'll get some slightly different perspectives. In terms of uh, any conflict of interest, or just even if you could just tell us what research in particular that you're involved in when it comes to febrile infants. Well, my research interests pertain mostly to use of new diagnostic tools and knowledge translation to minimize invasive testing for febrile young infants. I have no conflict of interest. I'm assuming that if you're minimizing testing, that you wouldn't have any conflict of interest because if you had conflict of interest, it would be maximizing testing so that whoever is making the testing will benefit. You. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not the case. It's rather opposite to the case. Okay. All right. Now. Before we talk about working up febrile infants, we need to define the term fever without a source, which we talked about in a previous episode. So fever without a source in pediatrics is simply a child less than three years old who, after initial history and physical, does not have an identified cause of their fever. We just have to kind of get that out of the way. Today, we're going to be talking about infants less than 90 days old or 60 days old, not the three-year-old, but that's just the definition. Now, we all know that the vast majority of fevers in kids have a viral etiology, but the younger the patient is, the more likely they are to have a bacterial etiology that is easy to miss, that can have bad outcomes. So that's why we're all, uh, especially in the adult emergency medicine world, we're all terrified of infants with fevers. Before we get into the latest recommendations for the management of febrile infants, my first question is, does the height of the fever matter? This is something that I've heard different opinions about, and there's different studies out there that say different things. In other words, a 45-day-old with a fever of 39 degrees Celsius, do they have any higher chance of having a bacterial infection as a cause for their fever than, say, the same infant that has a fever of 38.2 degrees? So there is some data out there, and you're right, it's always one of those controversial areas that we see in medicine, that the higher the fever, the more likely you are to have a serious bacterial infection. Perhaps... I could take a second just to, to identify the two things, serious bacterial infection versus an IBI. We have historically talked about serious bacterial infections, which have classically included the urinary tract infection, UTI, bacteremia, and bacterial meningitis. In about the last 10 years, we've really focused on identifying the infants at risk of the most dangerous infections, which we refer to now collectively as the invasive bacterial infections or IBIs which includes just the bacteremia or bacterial meningitis without the UTIs. One of the main problems is that UTIs account for the majority of SBIs, and they distort our ability to find the infections that we actually care the most about. And UTIs can be identified with relatively high sensitivity and specificity with simple urinalysis techniques, even in this age group. So really, our, our focus is on identifying infants at high risk of IBI. 
And it's really important to understand this, right? Because there's great differences in what the outcomes will be between an invasive bacterial infection and a serious bacterial infection, although they kind of overlap in classification. But if you eliminate the UTI, then you can look for those kids you really need to do the full extent of testing on and come to a better denominator and numerator as to who's going to get the test and who's most likely to be positive and what your course of clinical action will be after that. Got it. So IBI is this new sort of paradigm shift in terms of thinking about those febrile infants or which ones we really want to zero in on. Could you just give us some rough numbers on the outcomes of IBI versus SBI? So that would mean the outcomes of kids who have bacteremia or meningitis versus the kids who say just have a UTI. So for starters, the IBI is fortunately less common but significantly more dangerous. And UTIs will present in approximately 8% of all infants presenting with fever, as opposed to bacteremia, which we see at about a rate of 2%. And fortunately, meningitis, the least common, is at about 0.5% average across the first two months of life. In terms of outcomes, UTIs are regarded as less serious. And UTIs, there's less risk for a delayed diagnosis. An infant who presents with persistent fever, it's, of course, can lead to a concomitant bacteremia. But in general, isolated UTIs do not progress to as significant outcomes. So that is why it is most important to identify those infants who are now already bacteremic or who have bacterial meningitis. Got it. All right, let's say you have a 40-day-old infant with a fever of 38.5 degrees Celsius for, say, 24 hours, who after history and physical, you can't identify any source of fever, which is typical, right? It's kind of like our 95-year-old or our febrile neutropenic adult where we never find a source of the fever in the emergency department practically, and we just assume that they have something bad. Let's say you've thought about the five big sources of bacterial infection. So you've thought about UTI, you've thought about cellulitis, you've thought about abdominal sepsis, you've thought about septic arthritis, you've thought about meningitis. None of these are jumping out at you. So it's fever without a source. The child looks kind of sick, but vitals aren't bad. First, are there any biomarkers that can help in deciding who needs a workup and how extensive that workup is going to be? You know, there's things like procalcitonin, which some people don't even have access to. Some people do. No one likes to poke infants with IVs and blood draws unless it's absolutely necessary. What is the evidence and what is the right thing to do when it comes to needing biomarkers for these febrile infants of, say, less than 90 days old? So I, I just want to put a little perspective on this. Historically, we've used biomarkers. The biomarkers we used were, let's say, not as sophisticated or readily available that we have in the current generation of biomarkers. And I'll let uh, Brett speak more on the biomarkers that are really important in answering your question. But there were criteria that we would apply, and many people know of and use or still may use the Rochester criteria, which was validated for, ch for children less than 60 days of age, and really only required a urinalysis, a CBC, and uh, if you had uh, opportunity they had diarrhea, a stool, and looking at those things as part of your process. And the Rochester criteria led us down a pathway that would say, okay, you're febrile, you've arrived in my emergency department, I'll apply these criteria, I will look, and if the criteria are not met, then I can safely discharge you or admit you and observe you, depending upon the situation. And that's been well studied and validated. Where we now move is we've got an opportunity using some new biomarkers, or biomarkers that may have been there before but never used, to actually hone down that group to have a better idea of which children we want to do further investigations in and or treat at the time. Brett? Yeah, Gary's historical context is really important here. Uh, historically, we've been using largely the white count has been what has been guiding us. It's the primary biomarker that we base decisions on in the Rochester. What we know is that for IBI in particular, infants who present with bacterial meningitis and bacteremia don't have white counts that are distinguishable from those infants that do not. So the main biomarker we've been using for basically the better part of 40 years doesn't really help us identify the infants that we care the most about finding. So that, that's good to know that, you know, in adults who come in with, say, appendicitis, and the surgeon always asks us, well, what's the white count? And I ask them, well, why do you care what the white count is? 
I guess it's good to know that it's kind of similar in infants. That well, the same is true for febrile really young infants. It doesn't matter what the white yeah. count is. Okay. Yeah. And that's important, right? Because we've seen uh, in a clinical sense, people make errors in judgment based on a white count. And for example, a low white count can be more indicative of a serious bacterial infection or even an invasive bacterial infection than a normal or mildly elevated white count. So, you know, just using a single marker puts you at risk of either underestimating or overestimating the risk to that child. All right. So that, that's the white count. So Dr. Burstein, what about these uh, other quote unquote newer uh, well, yeah, you yeah, you mentioned uh, both CRP and procalcitonin, and these are really the what have become the gold standard for evaluation of febrile young infants. CRP, of course, has existed for a long time. It's inexpensive. It's ubiquitous. Basically, can be obtained in almost any practice setting, with the exception, perhaps, of an outpatient clinic setting. But in, in emergency departments, readily available, fast turnaround time, and we know that it outperforms the white count by a lot. It performs better both in terms of sensitivity and specificity. The gold standard really should be procalcitonin. It's been used for decades in Europe. We know that across Canada and the US, there's still relatively limited access to procalcitonin, and it tends to have longer turnaround time as well. But it is well worth employing when you have access to it because it has by far the best test characteristics. So best sensitivity and specificity for identifying infants at high risk of IBI. The procalcitonin itself does not stand alone as a test though. And we've had more information in the last five years, perhaps than the last 40 combined. And procalcitonin has been incorporated into several risk stratification criteria or clinical prediction rules that have been emerging since about 2015. In Europe, there's what's called the step-by-step -step rule that incorporates procalcitonin. And it also uses CRP and the absolute neutrophil count to risk stratify infants. And this strategy has a good sensitivity and specificity for IBI. And more recently, in 2019, the American PCARN group published a clinical prediction rule. And they're, of course, most famous for their head injury prediction rule. But they've derived a high-performing rule, and it was derived for SBI, but also performs quite well in its validation for IBI, and also is based on procalcitonin. What's interesting is that both of these risk stratification strategies make no use of the white count anymore. So these are really worth being familiar with. They're easy to find. They don't have a lot of variables. They have four variables or less, basically. The, cl the clinical prediction rule of PCARN is just three variables. It's just the urinalysis, the procalcitonin, and the ANC. And that is it. So this is uh, really the, the gold standard strategy to use when you have access to procalcitonin. And so I just want to make one comment about this historically, because if you look at when these biomarkers become uh, high in the patient's serum so you can detect them, the difficulty with CRPs is they occur late. They're, they're late. So most of the kids we're seeing with fevers, they may not be as elevated as you would like because they're day one or less in their illness, right? Because parents get very concerned with a two-month-old with a fever, so they bring them in early. So that's why it wasn't a great, it was a better marker, but it wasn't a great marker. Same with the ANC. It takes time for the ANC to rise. Nice thing with procalcitonin, because of it, the way it is generated by the body, it actually elevates very quickly and therefore allows you a better opportunity earlier in the infection to detect these serious bacterial and invasive bacterial infections. So that's a good point. Really, the, the nice thing about the procalcitonin, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit further on, was like, why is procalcitonin a good biomarker? So it increases faster than CRP. CRP increases faster than ESR. So I guess if you were to put them in order, it would be procalcitonin, CRP, ESR. And that's really important to understand when you have anyone who presents with some sort of infection that you're worried about. Just a couple of questions there with procalcitonin. One is, what is the sensitivity and specificity? And then the second one is, practically speaking, there's the step-by-step -step algorithm that the Europeans use. There's the PCARN rule for febrile infants that they use in the US. What do you use? personally in your practice when you're faced with a 45-day-old with a fever of 39? So to put into perspective the test characteristics and the performance of these tests, when you think about sensitivity, the trade-off of sensitivity and specificity, we think about the receiver-operator curve. Basically, you shade below the area under the curve, and that is a measure of your trade-off. So a higher area under the curve means a better test. And when you think about flipping a coin, that gives you an area under the curve of 0.5, 50%. So if I flip a coin, I have 50%. If I use a white count, it's about 55 or 60% for the area under the curve. If I use an ANC, it's going to be about 65%. Mm -hmm. 
And what we find is that for SBI, you have nearly superimposable AUC of about 80% for CRP and procalcitonin. And where procalcitonin really excels is actually for the detection of IBI, where you have about a 90% AUC. Now, what does that mean? The most sensitive and specific tests we have in clinical medicine are PCR tests. We amplify them so that they're very sensitive and they look for areas of genetic coding that are very specific. Those have sensitivity and specificities of about 95%, area into the curve about 95%. Clinically useful tests tend to have an AUC of about 80, 85%. We think about risk stratifying for appendicitis, maybe the Alvarado score. These are usually in about the 80% range. So when you think about procalcitonin with an area under the curve of 90%, it's pretty good. That is as a standalone test. Once you augment that with the addition of the urinalysis and the ANC, as done in the clinical prediction rule from PCARN, now you start to have negative predictive values approaching 100%. 100%. And in a recent validation, PCARN actually found that in a series of 3,200 infants, not one bacterial meningitis was missed. When you look at the confidence intervals, you would have to, when using this form of risk stratification, LP anywhere from 3,000 to infinity infants to be able to find one who would be missed. So this is a globally a very, very useful strategy. The problem with applying it is that not everybody has access to procalcitonin. And the study that we did across Canada, we found that only two of the pediatric emergency departments had access to procalcitonin. And this is in tertiary centers. That is similarly true in the US. So although these are probably the best forms of risk stratification, they're not always easy to apply. When you ask what I use personally, I'm lucky enough to be at one of these centers that just since about 2020 now has access to procalcitonin. So personally, we're able to use risk stratification along the lines of what is being used by the PCARN group. That being said, not everybody can do that. Gary, do you have access? No, we don't have access in, in London. So, the, so we are limited by the fact that we don't have that access, but we do have CRP and we do have ANC and we do have, uh, we can either apply the stepwise progression or we can use those two things in conjunction to come up to a, a reasonably good threshold. But what it may mean is that you are going to do more LPs in that particular group than we, they may do in Montreal, for example. And, you know, it's always that cost-benefit thing because we all know the devastating consequences of missing a child with meningitis. So anytime that you have a child that you're unsure of, doing the LP is a, is a good default position, regardless of whatever rule you're using. But with the ability to apl apply the rule in Montreal, for example, because they have procalcitonin, their likelihood of having to do the number of LPs is going to be diminished. So there will be a decreased intervention for that child. And of course, there's a lot of issues that go around with that intervention. I mean, when you go to ask parents for consent for an LP, they are extremely anxious that, you know, you're sticking a needle in my son's back or my daughter's back. You got to take fluid from around their brain. I mean, that's a terrible thing. It sounds really, really dramatic and terrible. And again, the, the problems with doing an LP is, is operator capability. And a good operator will have, say, a really good confidence interval of saying 85 to 90% of their LPs will come back pristine. A bad operator, back to your 50-50 coin thing. And what do I mean by pristine? You don't want blood contamination. We've all had the traumatic tap and it looks like we're doing a blood culture as opposed to a CSF culture, right? So that's of very little value. So I, I think that you have to understand that, right? And, and there is trauma and there's also the potential for, uh, although rarely, nerve root injury. I've seen that happen uh, where kids, you know, somebody doing an LP is offline and, and tickles one of the nerve roots, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what's really, really important to understand is what we're trying to aim for is choosing which child has the highest probability of having a IBI. And with that IBI, making sure we're making the right determination what test to do, which includes the LP. I just want to reiterate what, what Gary said. I think there's a really important point. And that is, what do you do when you don't have uh, procalcitonin? And the strategies that Gary is proposing, you know, following, say, step-by-step -step using CRP and ANC in, in lieu of uh, the historic risk stratification criteria, these are safe strategies. This is important. And if anything, what we lose out on in those strategies is the specificity. So you're going to have more children that are going to fail the low-risk criteria, and therefore you're going to have to err on the side of caution. But that's probably not a bad thing, right? Historically, as you said, we were LPing, admitting, and empirically treating all infants under three months. We probably don't need to cut corners 
And when we have tests that are better than they used to be already, we're going to be, you know, saving many of these families, these invasive procedures. Can it be a little better if you have access to PCT? Certainly. But without it, it is reasonable to be using CRP and ANC in conjunction. All right. PCT, procalcitonin. So do you guys have any idea of how much procalcitonin costs just so that all those docs out there who are listening to the podcast who might be asking their institutions, hey, we need procalcitonin? Yeah. So you saw my face light up. Two things. Um, the principal author on the forthcoming guidelines for febrile infants from the Canadian Pediatric Society. And in it, we advocate for PCT-based testing. We also just completed a cost analysis, cost modeling in revisions right now, looking at the cost of the addition of PCT compared to usual care. So obviously, because of its superior test performance, it has the ability to reduce overall costs, reduce admissions, reduce invasive testing. And the cost of the test itself, it's a little surprising why that would be uh, what is prohibitive. In our setting, a CBC costs about a dollar, a sodium costs about a dollar, a CRP costs about $2, and a PCT costs about $27. Now, in terms of the cost of admission... That's pretty much zero, yeah, zero, that's and right. zero. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So when you consider that in the scheme of the you know costs for admission, even just the materials for a lumbar puncture, the, the materials of an LP kit set cost more. So it, it's, it's really not clear from a cost perspective why this isn't more widely available. And we're not talking about, you know, a CBC's order on like every adult patient in the emergency department who comes in practically, except unless they stub their toe or something. And it's not like we're going to be doing procalcitonins on every child who comes in, even to a pediatric but, but I emergency. Think, I think that's the, that's the issue with a lot of institutions. They worry about, you know, you make a test available and uh, everybody likes to tick little boxes off for tests because they fear it's going to give them more information. Mm-hmm. So again, if we do get PCT universally across this country, which would be ideal for every emergency department to have access to, it's important to understand when to use that test, right? Because it doesn't have to be used with every kid that comes in with a fever. It's not going to give you any benefit. But in selective populations, especially the infant under 60 days of age, it has a vital role at helping make a decision tree or a decision point that's going to put this child in one path or another. And I think that's really critical from the standpoint of understanding when you go to your, your laboratory scientist and saying, you know, we really would like to have this test, but we're not going to do this test on every John, Mary, and Joe that comes through the door because in reality, what we're really interested in is trying to be more exclusive in the children we will go on to do a lumbar puncture and admit. Yeah, it sounds like we should be launching a Choosing Wisely campaign at the same time as launching wide access to procalcitonin. It's all about good education and choosing wisely. So it does sound like procalcitonin is what we should be using. And it sounds like you're advocating that we do try and get procalcitonin in our emergency departments, but that we really understand how to use it properly and to choose wisely. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. I want to circle back to the height of fever question. So again, there's been some controversy as to the predictive value of a high fever versus a low fever for IBI or SBI. From a practical perspective, how do you incorporate the height of the fever into your decision making when it comes to infants 90 days or younger? I'll be quite frank. I think there's a lot of mysticism around fevers. And why I say that is you'll talk to a parent, oh, you know, Mary or Billy had a fever. And what was the temperature? It was 37.2. And they assume that 37.2 or 37.5 is a fever. So, you know, first we have to clarify what a fever is. And a fever is anything over 38 degrees C, ideally rectally. And, you know, until we all understand that, and actually there was a study some years ago done in Montreal at St. Justine asking a whole bunch of people, including nurses, residents, 
attending physicians what their definition of a fever was. And it was amazing the degree of variability in that answer. So we have to set the track right for all of our listeners to make sure they understand, ensure that they understand a fever is greater than 38 degrees. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that once you've reached that threshold, at any point in your journey, either before the hospital or when you're in the hospital, it is a fever. You can't just say, well, it was done at home. We can't believe it. Now, we're excluding tactile fevers because tactile fevers are a whole different ball game. I don't know if we want to talk about that, but we're excluding tactile fevers. But that sets you on that journey. You're now in a class of group, whether you're good, look really, really well or not well, where you're going to start to say, okay, we have to, we've examined, we can't find a focus for this fever. We're going to have to put you in that pathway of where we're going to go with this. And you start that pathway, right? And in my mind, uh, and yes, there is a higher risk, potentially at higher fever, so the literature suggests, but it doesn't change it. I mean, we're looking at the absolute question of does this child require further investigation and what that investigation consists of and where we go with that in terms of uh, management, which we'll talk about a little later. So I think from the perspective, once you've hit that trigger of a fever, whether it's at home or in the emergency department, that sets in motion the wheels that we want to undergo, which is the, okay, well, what's my first step in this? Examine the child, I can't find a focus. What's my next step in this, which would be a urinalysis. And then from the urinalysis, you make your next decision. Do we do blood work and what that's going to be like, right? This point is, is critical. And the studies show that infants who present with a single spike of fever at home and are no longer febrile in the ED have the same risk of IBI as those who are febrile when we see them or in our emergency department. And in fact, I think a lot of clinicians make the cognitive error that because there was a fever measured only at home, this child is defervest, that they're now not at risk or they're at somehow lower risk, when in fact those risks are actually identical. And that single spike of fever at home might be the only clue that we ever get to be able to pick this kid up. So actually, it's really important to respect fever, even if it's measured only once, even if it's measured at home, as long as we understand, as Gary said, that we're dealing with a well-documented, recorded rectal temperature of 38.0. And it's not that there's a misunderstanding around what fever is. So that's the first thing. All right. So I just want to reiterate that a documented fever at home, we need to be as worried about as a documented fever in the emergency department. Particularly so if correctly measured rectally and above 38.0 by a reliable caregiver. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that brings up then Let's say you have a family who has used an ear thermometer and they say the temperature was 38.5 six hours ago, and now they're in your emergency department with a rectal temperature of 37.4. What do you do with that? So we know those techniques are less reliable, and you don't want to go down the invasive pathway potential admission antibiotic over an inaccurate reading. So the reference standard is still a rectal temperature. But if you have an indication that this child was warm tactile, they have also another tympanic membrane reading that is elevated, these are highly suggestive. And that might be a case where you want to use serial observation and serial temperature measurements. But really, if you're going to go down this path, it is because you have a accurately documented rectal temperature. But once you do, like Gary said, you're at the concert and your risks of IBI are equal whether you have one when you get to the eMERGE or not. And the other point to make is that this is most of the cases. Let's be clear. 50 to 60% of infants included in all studies and in RED present and do not have a fever at triage. And therefore, it would be a major pitfall to turn them all away. It is the majority that will defervesce. And the reality is that that is the natural cyclicity of fever, that it is cyclic. Again, it's important to respect that one fever at home. Okay. I, I think that's, if there's going to be one key take-home point for this segment podcast, that would be it. Because if you're not even thinking to do the workup in the first place, just because the rectal temperature you have right now in this moment in time is normal, I would think that that would be probably the biggest pitfall and ultimately lead to the worst outcomes. And so I'd hope that the listeners can reflect on that. Think about perhaps cases where They've seen that parents say there was a fever at home, there's no fever in the eMERGE, you observe them for a couple hours, there's no fever, they go home thinking that they're fine and they actually are not fine. You know, once you're onto the algorithm part, then it's a little bit easier because we just follow an algorithm. Once you're onto an algorithm, there's not much room for error there. You've got to get on the algorithm though. Exactly. So knowing and, and, when and to get on the that's algorithm. that's a problem because our collective bias realizes when that child comes through in a busy emergency department, 
People say, oh, God, now I got a baby with a fever. So there's two approaches you can take. You can take the no-mind approach, where it's, well, they're just going to get everything because I really don't care because you know I want to be safe, and I don't mean don't care in the sense of real caring, but you know this is my pathway. Or you can say, does this child apply to the concert ticket or the algorithm, as you say? And that's really imperative. And I think that eMERGE docs, when I, I do some medical legal work, and when I do my medical legal work, when I look at cases that really get missed, it's often around that point of fever. Kid comes in, they're afebrile in the emergency department, they might feed once, pee once, everything looks kind of good, but the parents are really saying to the, the attending physician, they're not themselves, right? We, how many times have we heard that as a, as a presenting complaint? And the eMERGE physician gives them all the risk stratification, well, return to this, this, and this, and the kid goes home and then comes back with a terrible outcome as a result of the fact that somebody disregarded the history of fever that was well-documented and accurately done. And you asked originally about the height of fever. And it's absolutely true that when you look statistically, odds ratios certainly tell us that higher fevers portend higher probability for IBI. That is true. But a very, very nice study recently published by a guy named Paul Aronson at Yale, just past 2021, they showed that 65% of children who had IBI never had a fever higher than 39, and 30% were never higher than 38.5. So although it is true that the higher the fever, the more likely IBI, it doesn't really mean that even at low levels or even afebrile in presentation, that they are actually cumulatively any less likely and that the risk is still significant. And so you have to respect that temperature, not based on its height, but on its presence in a sort of binary way. Yes or no? Well said, Brett. Yeah, well said. Everyone's right. <laughs> you know, in the argument of how it doesn't matter how high the fever is, well, yes, it matters. And no, it doesn't matter. At the same it matters time, statistically. So. Yeah. yeah. But the odds are non-trivial. Yeah. Even when it has either come down or when it didn't spike quite as high. Understood. Time for just a couple of quick announcements. Tickets for the Medical Education Podcast Production Course Podcast Camp Go on sale August 31st, the day after this podcast is published at podcastcamp.org. That's podcastcamp.org. There are only 20 tickets available. So if you want one-on-one hands-on coaching from me and my team on how to produce high-end medical education podcasts, get your tickets soon. Another couple of exciting EM Cases offerings are on the horizon. First is EMC GEM, that's G-E-M. That's Emergency Medicine Cases Global EM. We've got the brightest minds in global EM bringing you both a blog and some EM quick hits on the fascinating world of global emergency medicine so that we can all do better emergency medicine no matter where we practice. So stay tuned on EM quick hits and check the EM cases website for EMCGM. The other new offering is that soon we'll have most of the show notes of the main episode podcast available on the EM cases website in French. So if your first language is French, you'll be happy to know that you'll have free access to almost the entire library of EM Cases main episode written summaries. Check the website. You'll see Resume EM Cases in the navigation bar. Hit that and you'll be taken to the page with a list of PDFs arranged by specialty category. All right, back to the febrile infant. Let's move on to the general changes in management based on what we've been talking about and the current guidelines and what's coming out in the Canadian pediatric guidelines, what would you say are the most important aspects of our change in management of the febrile infant 60 days and younger? So for starters, one of the important aspects is to try when possible to incorporate procalcitonin into risk stratification. Second important idea is to use well-established and externally validated prediction rules to be able to identify infants at low risk. So, the so step, either, step either the step-by-step step step step. or the PCARN clinical prediction rules. Depending on whether you have a procalcitonin at your place or not. Got it. And, you know, even since the original first written guidelines for febrile young infants published by Larry Bariff going back to 1993, there has been a road less traveled already part of the guidelines, but that very few people or institutions will do. And that is a less invasive strategy. We know that infants in the first month of life are almost always subject to LP, admission, and usually these days on antibiotics as well. Even the original guidelines made room for admission and observation without LP and without antibiotics. So now that we have 
better risk stratification tools than Larry Behr had in 1993, one of the new guideline features is really going back to a less invasive strategy when possible. And it certainly makes room for this option of admission without LP, even in the first month of life, for infants who meet low-risk criteria, particularly when using a PCT-based risk stratification. Wow, that is a huge... I mean, even in under a month, because you know I've been teaching my residents for years, under a month, it's kind of a no-brainer because they all need LPs, they all need full septic workup, they all need pediatrics, they all need to be admitted, they all need everything. That's the kind of not even thinking, just do it. So that's really an interesting point there, just that there are a subset of kids even under 30 days old, who do not require an LP, but you need to have that procalcitonin and it needs to be clear in the PCARN algorithm. Right. So we use options for management among infants who meet low risk criteria that are low risk of IBI. And one of the big paradigm shifts is to now be selectively using lumbar puncture and empiric antibiotic treatment. And what we could now really conceptualize is really a framework for shared decision-making with families. And this is something that is also emphasized both in the Canadian Pediatric Society forthcoming guidelines, but also the American guideline as well. And that is that when you have an infant that meets low-risk criteria, the benefit to lumbar puncture and empiric antibiotic is really questionable. And this is one of those conversations now that is reasonable to be having with families that I think Historically, we weren't having as a conversation. It was really sort of a strategy that was widely adopted, considered sort of a medical legal standard, and unquestioned. And I think, you know, most clinicians, certainly even through my training, did this sort of uh, reflexically. You know, we say, okay, our, the baby is calm, has a fever, full septic workup, LP, admit antibiotics, straightforward. But there really are, you know, risks, harms, iatrogenic complications, and very good reasons not to do invasive intervention. So when you have good risk stratification tools, there is an option for that. Yeah, and I think that's really important to realize. Now, there are subcategories under 60 days as well. So you may be able to, from that child from, say, 29 days older, be able to send that child home with good follow-up. But when we get down to the child less than 29 days of age, we're a little more conservative still. Maybe that will change in the next 10 years. But if they meet the risk stratification criteria for no LP, you can admit that child with a, after a discussion with the parents and observe them in an admitted environment. From my perspective, I think it's still a little early to say that child under 29 days of age is a child or 26 days, whatever day we're going to cut up, is easy to go home with good risk stratification. Because I think it, it's a very difficult period to be able to say that as a clinician, Right. But if you know you can now admit this child and observe them without doing an LP, without starting empirical antibiotics, wait for your, your uh, initial blood cultures to come back and your urine culture to come back. And if that child deteriorates in the hospital, then you can do your lumbar puncture and start empirical antibiotics. That's a big decision tree and a different change for parents as well as the provider and more importantly to the child. Yeah, certainly what Gary's describing really does describe our, nor our current normative approaches. It would be unusual for someone to work up an infant in the first 28 days of life and not LP, send them home. It would be unusual to, you know, what we know is that in all of the sites across Canada and all of the freestanding pediatric hospitals in the U.S. that have in-house institutional guidelines, they all prescribe LP currently in the first month of life. So what we're talking about here is a bit of a shift in paradigm. But probably it would not be widely acceptable to immediately jump to discharging all these patients home. Um, that's certainly not the, the current norms of practice. I think, to be honest, we'll, we'll probably get there, particularly if follow-up can be insured, assured. But I don't think that we're there yet. And that's an evolution. When I started my training back in the dark ages, every child under three months of age got the same workup. And then we said, well, why are we doing this? Let's Gary, we just have to wait 30 more years. We'll be there in 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, we said, well, let, maybe it's a child under two months, under 60 days of age that now requires the full workup. And then we've changed that. So now we really are reflective of that child under 29 days of age. But I think with, this new, with these new testing technologies and with better understanding of risk associated with that and shared decision-making, we can reduce that again even further. Is it fair enough to say that for an adult community emergency physician, 
that the decision to send home a child less than, say, two months, certainly less than one month, should be made by the consulting pediatrician, not by the emergency doctor in general at this point, and that there's hope for the future that perhaps we will get to a point where those children could be safely sent home by the community emergency physician. I know it's hard for you to put yourself in the shoes because you're an academic pediatric emergency physician, but is that fair to say? Our forthcoming guideline says that all infants in the first two months of life should undergo investigations and that infants in the first month of life still currently should be hospitalized and observed. Got it. And you know, it's important to be able to, to be in a center where that's possible. It might require you describing you know, a community physician seeing an infant in a community setting might be necessary for that patient to be transferred. They may or may not have a short stay unit they can use. They may or may not have access to a pediatric consultant service. It really depends. But right now, I don't think that the the temperature, pun intended, uh, <laughs> is really is really yet uh, such that we would would ever advocate to be sending those those kids home right now. I feel like this is going to be like an adults in uh, pulmonary embolism, where you know, 15 years ago it was totally insane to send someone home with a pulmonary embolism, and now it's standard practice for low risk pulmonary emboli patients to be sent home. In the current environment across Canada, at least with wait times getting longer and longer and longer, whether it's a pediatric emergency department or a community emergency department, I think this is a great example of an evidence-based tool that we can use to really help decrease uh, some of those Unnecessary uh, unnecessary admissions. And then of course, unnecessary admissions will improve our wait times and patient flow which is at the top of many emergency physicians and many emergency administrators' mind uh, these days uh, in 2022. I, I think that's a good summary. I think what's really imperative, and you know, sometimes we forget this, is what we also want to do is what's right for the child. Yeah, I think Gary is saying that acting in the best interest of the patient, minimizing their invasive testing and admissions, happens also to be good for hospital administrators and overall wait time. Thank but, you for summarizing that, Brent. Well yeah. said, well yeah. said. <laughs> I would like to cycle back to, to something we actually haven't touched on, but that I think is also a really important pitfall. We talked about height of fever and fever on presentation. And if you have only a history of fever, remember that's important even when they don't have fever, still when they present. I think the other pitfall that a lot of physicians will find themselves falling trapped to is when a patient, an infant presents with respiratory viral symptoms, positive sick contacts, everyone at home is sick and the baby has a cold. Everybody wants to do nothing when the baby has a cold. But I think this is also worth talking about because infants who present with viral illnesses, we know that those who have viral illnesses, again, do have a statistically lower risk of IBI, probably about fourfold lower, at least half. So when we talk about, you know, roughly 10% have serious bacterial infections, that number probably goes down to about five. You know, everything gets cut in half, bacteremia sitting at about 2% probably falls to about 1%. The problem is that the risk of infection is still at least, you know, still around 4% overall. And these are vulnerable infants who have underdeveloped immune systems. And that 4% risk of something potentially life-threatening is something that we still don't want to miss. So the presence of a virus, although it does reduce your risk of infection, should not change your initial management. That's a very important point. And the other problem is that even when you know the infant has a virus and you say, hey, that means they're at lower risk of SBI or IBI, the problem is we generally don't know which virus they have and not all viruses were created equal. The most prevalent virus, the virus that stayed most in circulation even through COVID is rhinovirus. And rhinovirus does not portend any lower risk of SBI or IBI. Rhinovirus is sort of ubiquitous, hangs around, infants may have it, and it may be even an incidental finding. All this to say, we don't know what the virus is that we're dealing with. It might be a virus that lowers risk for that particular infant, or it might just be rhinovirus, and they're actually at no difference in risk at all. So I think it's important for clinicians not to fall into the trap of assuming this runny nose is the cause and there is no other concomitant infection. And I think it's important to keep in mind that those infants also need a workup. And that's, that's imperative because many a time a resident will come to us and say, 
well, they've got a cold, so I just think this is your eyes. Can we send them home? And you say, well, look, you know, they're 29 days. Yeah, they've got a cold, but they've had a fever of greater than 38, either documented at home or in the emergency department. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to put this child at risk? Because as Brett said, rarely do we know which virus it is. So again, really important, fever at home, viral infection are not excluders of any of these protocols. Do not blow off the right. infant who has a cold. Do not blow off the infant who has a rectal temperature that is normal right now, but has had a documented fever in the last, say, 24 hours. These are probably some of the most common pitfalls. I would agree. Let's talk about the doc out there who doesn't have procalcitonin. Yeah, the American Academy of Pediatrics just released in August of 2021 their guideline for the management of febrile young infants, which also uh, advocates for procalcitonin-based testing. But recognizing the limitation in the widespread availability of procalcitonin, they made another recommendation that didn't follow any of the prescribed step-by-step PCARN protocols per se. And that recommendation was that you could use CRP, ANC, and maximum temperature as a risk stratification strategy. Now, these had never been tested in combination or at the cut points that they propose. So certainly some listeners are going to be familiar with the very, very widely read American and highly anticipated. This was a document that took 11 years for them to create. It's an incredible document, probably one of the most evidence-based and robust documents I have ever read in pediatric medicine. As Gary alluded to, it is, it is massive. It's like a Bible. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very, very impressive document. But this particular recommendation was not evidence-based, and the, the guideline committee itself didn't entirely all agree on how it should be framed, and, and they basically used pieces of evidence from different studies, and they put together something that had never been tested. So what Gary is referring to is, we just recently tested this strategy. The guideline recommends using low-risk thresholds of a CRP of 20, an ANC of 5.2, and a maximal rectal temperature of 38.5. If you are below all three of those, the guideline recommends that you are a low-risk infant and you can follow low-risk strategies. Those combinations have not been tested. So we just recently validated that in a large cohort, nearly 1,000 infants presenting to the Montreal Children's Hospital, where we had access to all of that information. Now, we recently introduced procalcitonin, but we didn't have it for these 1,000 infants. So it's a perfect cohort to test this previously untested recommendation. Interestingly, it performed very well in terms of sensitivity. And among approximately 30 infants with IBI, not one was missed, which means that it had a perfect sensitivity of 100% and a perfect negative predictive value. Now, this is just 1,000 infants. But 1,000 infants is not trivial. 1,000 infants is the size of the PCARN derivation study. So to put in context, that's a very well-performing, safe test. It had a specificity, though, only of about 50%. So for those physicians that have access to CRP, ANC, and get the information on maximal temperature, this is probably going to work as a very safe strategy for risk stratifying infants when you don't have PCT. If anything, we expect that there is going to be a lot of children who don't necessarily meet all of those low-risk criteria. That's important because then you enter the algorithm of what you need to do in terms of a workup, right? And uh, I'm a very strong advocate, and I think Brett is too, that you know you start with the urine. We know that that's the highest thing, but if we're worried still because of the potential for invasive or serious bacterial infection, then they would require at least a blood culture. You're going to draw blood for your ANC, so you might as well get your culture at the same time. Yeah, I just want to clarify what you say is low risk and then what the workup should be for low risk. And then if they don't meet these meet these threshold criteria, that would assume that they're high risk and then what tests they actually need if they're high risk. So could you just clarify, if you do decide that they're low risk, what testing do they need? So low risk infants, their disposition and additional testing observation depends on their age. And so the recommendation is different for infants in the first month of life versus those in the second month of life. So what we were talking about before, the option for infants in the first month of life who meet low-risk criteria, either to admit no LP, observe no antibiotics. Some clinicians will be more comfortable still performing the LP, but they don't necessarily need um, antibiotics if they have a clean LP. And some will still, of course, 
LP the infant, admit, and start an empiric antibiotics. All three of those are acceptable strategies. But the point we are emphasizing in the new guideline is that for infants in the first month of life, there is that option to not LP, to admit, and to observe. As for infants in the second month of life, those infants now meeting low-risk criteria are eligible for an outpatient strategy, and they can be discharged, ideally, with follow-up arranged. What I've described are the blood and historical features to decide on whether you have a high risk or low risk of IBI. One of the points of the American Academy of Pediatrics recent guideline and our forthcoming guideline is separating a urinary tract infection from IBI. A urinary tract infection, as determined by a positive urinalysis, still needs to be addressed and it needs to be treated. TREC guidelines from 2019 the uh, translating uh, emergency knowledge for kids. The guidelines have uh, been consistent across other guidelines using oral antibiotics for infants with a UTI in the second month of life. And we advocate for the same in the forthcoming CPS statement. So if you have a positive urinalysis, that is a presumptive UTI, and infants in the second month should have oral antibiotic treatment and can be managed as outpatients if they meet low-risk criteria for IBI. What's really important here to to remember, Anton, is that when you're going through the, either the stepwise or the PCARN, urinalysis is part of the process to, to judge whether you're low risk or high risk. So you're going to get that urinalysis, right? It's fundamental, rudimentary to the whole process of assigning risk at the end. All of the risk stratification criteria utilize the urinalysis as part of their risk stratification. In terms of determination of risk of IBI, right. we separate risk stratification of urinary tract infection from risk of IBI. A child failing high-risk criteria should be managed according to high-risk criteria based on age. A UTI, regardless of their IBI risk, needs to be managed according to UTI-based protocols. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, these things have algorithm branching algorithms that look like a you know a thousand year old family tree you have to understand <laughs> us trying to boil it down to what that algorithm looks like in a podcast is not that straightforward <laughs> all right well we what we, i would suggest is we um, will have either in the checking, show notes yeah i would say yeah. either checking out um the visual figure or algorithm we have coming in the cps statement that'll be out soon Alternatively, looking even at the American Academy of Pediatrics guideline, they're a little bit more conservative in the, first, in the first 21 days of life. But when you look at the algorithm, you get a sense of the risk stratification for IBI with a urinary tract infection assessment, but that they are handled separately. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we'll, we'll have in the show notes uh, the American guideline algorithm. And when can we hope that the Canadian algorithm will be published? We're in the uh, last phase of revision right now, and we should probably be out, I anticipate, by the end of the year. Okay. And, and just one other thing that we're going to talk about today at the end of our discussion is there are aids available in terms of electronic apps. Gary is alluding to apps that have been developed as part of very large quality improvement initiatives. The American Academy of Pediatrics endorsed the largest ever quality improvement project that they have been a part of. It was called the Revise Project. It is uh, reducing variability in infant sepsis evaluation. Effectively, they developed online apps. There's an app that is called Peds Guide that you can find on the App Store, uh, and it basically has an algorithm built in. You do need to provide it information, so in initiate the workup. It recommends what the workup should be, what the disposition is, and it incorporates uh, procalcitonin and CRP, just like we've talked about. So that's one thing you can use. You can also find institutional guidelines from excellent institutions uh, online. And a very good example uh, that incorporates best evidence would be the uh, protocol from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP. Very easy to find at uh, www.chop.edu. You can follow their algorithm for the ED management. And it's, it's excellent also. Excellent. Trying to make life easier for the everyday physician in the eMERGE department. We're all for that. On that excellent note, thank you very much, gentlemen, for both your insights into the wonderful world of febrile infants. Dr. Burstein, I hope to have you back on the podcast soon. And Dr. Joubert, always a pleasure to have your words of wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. Yep. All right, time for the big review of risk stratification and workup of the febrile infant in the ED. 
In the show notes for this main episode podcast, we'll have all the key definitions, top five clinical pitfalls, the three decision tools we've talked about clearly laid out, and the best part, a beautiful algorithm that incorporates all of it so that next time you're faced with a febrile infant, you can simply check the algorithm and know exactly what needs to be done. So first, the definitions. Fever, when it comes to the febrile infant, can be defined in many ways, but for the purposes of risk stratification and workup, it is a rectal temperature of 38.0 degrees Celsius or more, whether that's before they get to the ED or in the ED. Next is understanding the difference between SBI and IBI. So that's serious bacterial infection or invasive bacterial infection. So SBI includes UTI, meningitis, and bacteremia, while IBI, or invasive bacterial infection, includes only meningitis and bacteremia, the conditions that we really worry about and what the upcoming Canadian Pediatric Society position statement will use. There are three decision tools to consider based on whether or not you have access to procalcitonin at your place. The step-by-step decision tool includes five things. One, the infant's well-appearing. Two, they're 22 to 90 days old. Three, the urinalysis is negative for leukocytes. Four, the procalcitonin is less than 0.5 nanograms per liter. And five, the CRP is less than or equal to 20 milligrams per liter. And the ANC is less than or equal to 10,000 micrograms per liter. If all these criteria are met, there's only a 0.7% risk of IBI and full septic workup is likely not required. The PCARN decision tool has three things you need to remember. One is the urinalysis is negative for leukocyte esterase, nitrites, and pyuria, and they define pyuria as a white blood cell count of five or less per high power field. Number two, an ANC of less than or equal to 4,090. And lastly, a procalcitonin of less than or equal to 1.7 nanograms per milliliter. So for infants 26 to 60 days old, there's a 99.8% sensitivity for ruling out SBI with the PCARN rule. And then the third rule that we mentioned was the Aronson tool for infants less than 21 days of age. And it also includes just three things. Highest temperature measured in the ED, and you get two points if it's between 38 and 38.4, and you get four points if it's 38.5 or more. Then there's the ANC, greater than or equal to 5,185. And lastly, a urinalysis that's positive, so leukocyte esterase, nitrites, or pyuria, and again, they define it as more than five white blood cells per high power field, and you get three points for that. So a score of zero or one identifies infants who probably do not require an LP. All right, let's talk about the five pitfalls that I just want to highlight based on our discussion in this podcast. Number one is the height of the fever. Now, although data suggests infants who have a higher fever have a higher probability of IBI, many infants with IBI do not have high fevers. So when it comes to deciding whether or not to work them up, Fever should be treated as a binary yes or no. Another big pitfall is that when infants are afebrile at triage, don't assume that they're okay. So don't disregard the infant with a single rectal temperature above 38 degrees Celsius taken by a reliable caregiver that's no longer febrile when they present to the ED. These infants have the same risk of IBI as infants that remain febrile when we see them. Just remember that fevers are often cyclic. The third pitfall has to do with febrile infants with URIs. So don't disregard the febrile infant presenting with signs and symptoms of a viral illness like an upper respiratory tract infection because these patients may still have a concomitant bacterial infection and require the same initial management approach. The fourth pitfall is assuming that a normal white blood cell count rules out SBI or IBI. In this age group, the sensitivity of white blood cell count for SBI is only about 55%. And the last pitfall is assuming that they don't have SBI or IBI if the CRP and ANC are normal. Remember that the rise of CRP and ANC takes time. 
the great thing about procalcitonin is that it's not time dependent. So when it comes to CRP and ANC, if the patient has a fever for less than 24 hours, you can't rule out IBI or SBI with a negative CRP and ANC. If it's over 24 hours and the ANC and CRP are negative, that's much more reliable for ruling out IBI. All right. I suggest that after listening to the podcast, go directly to the show notes on the EMCase's website or Instagram and study the algorithm so that you can get it all straight in your head and so you know how to access it easily when you're in the ED. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's main episode podcast. We have more highlights from the CAPE conference coming to EMCase's soon. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.